This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, it goes without saying that the single most important component of our aquariums is also the most obvious, water. It's the literal, literal, I can't even say that word. It's the literal bearer of life in, in the environment in which our fishes, our plants, and our other organisms thrive in. It's so important that I can't even say it. But really, it's fundamental. It's the reason why we're drawn to fishes, not gerbils, tarantulas, or mice, or whatever other pets people keep. Yeah, we're, we're into water. And I dare say that we take it for granted a bit. Now, sure, some hobbyists rightfully place the importance of good quality, properly conditioned water at the very top of their want list of stuff required for successful aquariums. And these are often, you know, fish breeders or very serious hobbyists who understand the fundamental importance of good water quality for their work. Not just water quality, but just good water overall. Now, some of the most common questions we receive lately here at Tannen are things like, how much whatever do I need to get my tank water to look like blah, 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 or how much whatever is needed to lower the water to, you know, the pH of the water in my tank, or how much do I need to get a good amount of humic substances and tannins into my aquarium? And I usually respond with the simple, I don't know. And you're like, wow, that's super helpful customer service, Felman. Well, look, they're all really good questions. They're logical, they're important, and I kind of feel like many hobbyists are looking for a plug-and-play formula or a recipe for how to accomplish certain water conditioning tasks. I totally get that. But the reality is, there is no recipe for how to do this stuff. And it sucks, I know. Like, why, Scott? I read that you could just add some of this black water extract that you can buy online and maybe add some catapa leaves and stop. Just stop, please. We're just making this painful. Simply adding leaves or bottled extracts to your tap water is not going to result in instant Amazon or Orinoco or whatever. There are just numerous complexities and nuances which contribute to these habitats that simply recommending adding X to your water isn't the whole story. It's not going to work for you. There's so many variables in the equation that it's almost impossible to give a definitive answer. And yeah, us guys on the botanical, you know, in the botanical biz haven't exactly helped the situation. Like over the years... You know, vendors who sold catapoles, for example, would recommend starting amounts, you know, three leaves per 15 liters of water or whatever of whatever botanical materials that we use in our aquariums. I mean, we've sort of done it too. And although our recommended dosage of leaves was given for different reasons, that being to avoid adding too much material to your tank too quickly, the idea of a recipe in general is kind of delusional in my opinion. Now, look, this is all well and good, but it's based on what? I mean... Are, they, are these recommendations based on how many leaves of what size that a typical hobbyist with a 10-gallon aquarium needs to keep to, you know, to get the water looking brown or to lower tap water with a starting pH of 7.4 and a KH of whatever to 6.97 or to impart X ppm of tannins or humic substances into a given quantity of water? I mean, see, there, there's, you know, add to the story that you really can't soften water and make it more malleable by using botanical extracts and just botanicals alone. And you have got a good case for confusion. It's just not that simple. Now, maybe we can gain a bit of understanding 
um, you know, or at least an appreciation for the dynamics of this process by looking once again to nature. Have you ever thought about how water reaches all of the wild aquatic systems of the world? I mean, it's got to get there some way, right? So how does it reach the ponds, the lakes, the streams, and the rivers, and the flooded forests of the world? Well, first off, it simply falls into the body of water directly from the sky, and that's that. Some of it does. Some is a result of overflowing streams and rivers, like, you know, those flooded Agapo forests that I talk incessantly about. Inputs of precipitation following over the area of an aquatic habitat are transferred to the habitat via a number of different pathways. It's surprisingly complicated. There's a whole science behind this. It's called hydrology, and it's actually quite interesting. As fish geeks, we probably already are acquainted with this field of study, or at least tangentially, or if not, we should be. So water comes from a variety of sources, reaching a myriad of ecological niches. However, not all the water has such an easy journey on its way into our favorite aquatic habitat. Even in the case of rainwater, some of it simply lands in the trees in the surrounding area and evaporates. And this is a process scientists call interception and accounts for the fact that not all water makes it to the ground. Water that does reach the ground enters the soil through a process called infiltration, slowly percolating down to the soil areas known as the saturated zone. And as you'd imagine, this is where the fun really begins, at least to a soil geologist. The soil properties control the infiltration capacity, and these include things like soil permeability, the presence of vegetation and plant roots, and how much water is already in the soil. Through what is known as groundwater flow, Ultimately, the water finds its way into our favorite aquatic habitats. And it's important to note that soil texture, which is the relative proportion of sand, silt, and clay particles within the mix, affects the infiltration rates. So sandy soils like podzols, which you've heard me talk about a lot, and that's kind of what we model our, some of our sedimented substrates on, are common to forested areas of South America. And they have a higher permeability than some clay-based soils. In really arid areas, a crust can form on the soil surface, decreasing the permeability. And of course, the thickness of the soil directly affects how much water the soil can actually absorb. And in many cases, the substrate composition and its relationship with the water has a direct impact on the life forms which inhabit these aquatic systems. In the case of some habitats like vernal pools, which are filled with water seasonally, the substrate is of critical importance to the aquatic life forms which reside there, especially things like fishes, killifishes, and stuff like that. Uh, that sounded very technical, stuff like that. Boy, I'm on a roll today, aren't I? Anyway, like we've said many times, soils and geology are perhaps the primary driver of water composition in nature. Let's talk more about black water. Now, in a black water environment, the color is a visual indicator of an influx of dissolved materials that contribute to the richness of the environment. A vague term, I guess. But indeed, a blackwater environment is typically described as an aquatic system in which vegetation decays, creating tannins that leach into the water, making it transparent acidic water that's darkly stained and resembles tea. Very charming. Yet, that's not the whole story, really. It's important to really understand the most simple of questions like, what exactly is blackwater anyways? A scientist or ecologist will tell you that black water is created by drainage from older rocks and soils. In Amazonia, you could look up the Guiana Shield, which results in dissolved fulvic and humic substances uh, present in small amounts of you know, suspended sediment 
and typically characterized by low pH, 4.0 to 6.0, and dissolved elements, yet higher silica contents, higher magnesium, sodium, potassium, and calcium concentrations, excuse me, and, and, and lower concentrations of those things. And the electrical conductivity is also lower than what you see in so-called whitewater habitats. So tannins are also imparted to the water by leaves and other botanical materials which accumulate in these habitats, but they don't come from the soil. But the action of the water upon fallen leaves and other botanical-derived materials leaches various compounds out of them, creating that deep tint that many of us are so familiar with. Now, indeed, this leaching process is analogous to boiling leaves for tea. The leached compounds are both organic and inorganic and include things like tannin, carbohydrates, you know, organic acids, pectic compounds, minerals, growth hormones, alkaloids, and phenolic compounds. Now, most of the extractable substances in the surface litter layer are humic acids, typically coming from the decaying plant material. Scientists have concluded that the greater input of plant litter leads to greater input of humic substances into groundwater. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? In other words, those leaves that accumulate on the substrate are putting out significant amounts of humic acids, as we've talked about many times before. And although humic substances like fulvic acid are found in both black water and clear water habitats, the organic detritus, you know, from leaves and stuff in black water contains more extractable fulvic acid than in clear water habitats, as one might suspect. So the Rio Negro, for example, contains mostly humic acids, indicating that suspended sediment selectively absorbs humic acids from the water. The low concentration of, you know, suspended sediments in rivers like the Negro is one of the main reasons why high concentrations of humic acids are maintained. With little to no suspended sediment, there's no adsorbent surface, other than the substrate of the river upon which these acids can be taken, uh, can be taken a hold of or adsorbed. So when you think about it, all this kind of contributes to why black water has the color that it does too. Black water in the Amazon basin is colored a reddish brown. Well, why? Well, it has those organic compounds dissolved in it, of course. And most light absorption is in the blue region of the spectrum. And the water is almost transparent to red light, which explains the red coloration of the water. Whoa, crazy, right? And many of those organic compounds come from the surrounding land, as we've touched on already. So in summary, a long summary of, uh, with a very you know, confused description here, but in, in summary, natural black waters typically arise from highly leached environments where most of the soluble elements in the surrounding rocks and soils are rapidly removed by heavy rainfall. And the materials such as soils are the primary influence on the composition of black water. Now, leaves and other materials contribute to the process and the appearance in nature, but they're not the primary drivers of its creation and composition. And that's a lot of confusion there because we tend to confuse what we do in the aquarium practice with what happens in nature, and it's not exactly the same. So right from the start, it's evident that natural black water is all about the soils. Yes, I'll repeat it again. It's more a product of geology than just about anything else, which is partially why we spent so much time working on these different substrates under the nature baseline, trying to come up with more authentic substrates that lend themselves better to the creation of black water. Now, more confusing, recent studies have found that most of the acidity in black waters can be attributed to dissolved organic substances and not dissolved carbonic acid. In other words, organic acids from compounds found in soil and decomposing plant material as opposed to inorganic substances. Black waters are almost always characterized by a high percentage of organic acids. Now, despite the appearance as a general rule, blackwater rivers are lower in nutrients than clear rivers. Now, wouldn't it be interesting when contemplating 
you know, more natural biotope aquariums to study and take into account the surrounding geology and physical characteristics of the habitat to recreate the habitat based on the soil or geological composition of the surrounding terrestrial environment. I think that'd be cool. And as we know by now, the influence of factors like soil and the presence of, you know, the presence of terrestrial materials like seed pods, leaves, and branches play a huge role in the chemical composition and appearance of the water. It's really no different in the aquarium, right? Like so many things in nature, the complexity of blackwater habitats is more than what meets the eye. Chemically, biologically, and ecologically, blackwater habitats are sort of a weave of independencies, interdependencies actually, with soil and water and surrounding forest all functioning together to influence the lives of the fishes which reside in them. So no single factor could help provide all the necessary components for fish populations to thrive. So it also is important to realize that to damage or destroy any one of them could spell disaster for the fishes and for the ecosystem which supports them. So it's really incumbent upon us as hobbyists and lovers of nature to understand, protect, and cherish these precious habitats for the benefit of future generations if we want to ever, you know, see this stuff. Now, with regards to our aquarium work, although there may even be breakthroughs in terms of, you know, blackwater extracts and additives coming onto the market, there's still a lot of questions that would have to be answered before we could simply state that X number of drops per gallon of such and such a formula would yield a specific outcome. This reminds me of the reef aquarium world uh, more and more, doesn't it? You know, so if I made any argument here, it's that this stuff is every bit as much of an art in terms of aquarium keeping as it is a science. We will at least for the foreseeable future have to use the data that we have available and formulate a best guess as to how much of what can give us some of the impacts that we're interested in for our aquariums. We simply can't authoritatively make blanket statements like you need X number of catopolis per gallon in order to recreate Rio Negro-like conditions in your aquarium. We simply can't state that you can show in some, you know, throw in some podzolic soil in a deep black water either. That, that would be irresponsible. There's so many factors at play here. And to just, you know, emphasize one over many others would be ridiculous. Make, marketing hyperbole aside, we're just sort of guessing we are. And that's certainly nothing to be discouraged about or embarrassed about as hobbyists. We as a community are getting deeper and deeper into the functional aspects of blackwater botanical style aquariums than we ever were in the years past. So more lights being shed on what's going on in both our aquariums and in the natural habitats that we want to replicate so badly. We're learning more every day about how the presence of tannins and humic substances in our aquariums affect the health, the longevity, and the spawning behaviors of our blackwater fishes. We're learning about the challenges and the realities of managing blackwater systems over the long term, understanding the good, the bad, and the dangerous possibilities that are present when we experiment with some of these ideas. There's so much, 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 much more work to be done. And a lot of talented hobbyists like yourself are out there on the front lines every day, you know, contributing to the body of knowledge that will benefit the hobby for generations. Stay persistent, stay bold, stay open-minded, stay well-informed. Stay curious, stay disciplined, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tenant Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.